Lords of Limited is proud to be brought to you in part by StarCityGames.com. Not only are they the home of the top content and coverage on the web, they're also the world's largest independent retailer for Magic the Gathering singles and supplies. For more information, visit StarCityGames.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Lords of Limited. My name is Ben Warney, and joining me on the line, fresh off of a co-stream at Jamie Topple's house, Ethan Sachs, and member of streaming powerhouse team, Team Toppleware. How was it? It was great, Ben. As you know, it was it was rowdy. It was fun. There were many, many giggles to be had. Uh, but I always have a blast stream with Jamie, and we're going to try and make that more of a, a regular thing. How are you doing? I know this is a very exciting day for you. Hashtag spring break, baby. We're, we're scheduled for one to three inches of snow. I'm pumped. <laughs> So you're just inside playing magic all day today? Absolutely, yeah. Firing up the stream as soon as we are done. And very, very exciting for me, and I hope for you, Ben's going to be making a little road trip to Pittsburgh next week. Yeah, I am stoked. Yeah, I'm really excited to have you. We're going to have uh, we're gonna have a blast. going to be playing a lot of magic. So speaking of, how are things going with you? I've seen so many trophy pictures on Twitter from Theros Beyond Death. Yeah, I feel like I have finally turned a corner in the format. I have trophied my last three drafts and like could just be like feeling good because I've just trophied three times, you know, but uh-huh. I already was even before I was trophying starting to feel better about the format i still don't think it's a great format i think it's fine like it's Mm -hmm. it's not nearly as bad as i thought it was initially i've come around and there are a lot of lessons to take away i think from theros beyond death but do really feel like i've turned a corner i feel like when i look at a pack i can order the cards and i know where the gaps are between the cards and that that's something that has been eluding me and was the same thing in dom when i was struggling in dom i really just could not say yes, these cards are better. There's a gap here. These cards are better. There's a gap here. And I think that's really important to be able to do. Yeah, for sure. Well, I'm excited to maybe apply some of those lessons or share some of those lessons with our listeners this week, where we're going to be reviewing our top eight lessons learned throughout the podcast, um, the history of the podcast. So we'll be referencing some episodes, diving into some lessons we've learned, and also seeing how those apply to Theros Beyond Death or what sorts of things from Theros Beyond Death uh, update those lessons. But before we get into any of that, some housekeeping stuff to take care of. First of all, the Patreon page, patreon.com slash Lords of Limited, where folks can go to give back to the show if they so choose. Now, we know that, you know, with the coronavirus, there is a lot of uncertainty out there, especially for a lot of people's incomes as as people are, you know, being told to work from home or whatever. So we, we understand that people giving to the, the podcast is out of generosity and out of support for what we're doing. And if for whatever reason, there are reasons you can't do that for a while or, you know, for now, that's totally fine. There are plenty of ways to support the show by listening to it, telling people about it, checking out our YouTube channel. All that stuff helps to support the show in a non-financial way. And we appreciate any and all support that we get. But of course, folks who want to give back to the show, get access to our Discord, which is a fantastic resource and a great way to stay connected with an incredible community of like-minded, limited players uh, while we're in sort of this lockdown phase for however long this happens. Um, And any and all new patrons that join the discord we want to make sure that we shout them out on the show so this week we are welcoming to the fold kevin colin nathan and andrew thank you thank you thank you we really appreciate your support yeah cannot say thank you enough and i want to echo what you said i think you know if you're not used to being at home cooped up i think the lords of limited discord is a great place to engage with community of good people that play limited that enjoy the same thing you do as well as our youtube channel which i have been enjoying immensely creating content for we're dropping two draft videos a week and two what's the plays a week we got a lot going on over there as well so if you've got idle time on your hands thanks to being self-quarantined head on over to our youtube channel and check it out yeah and and just want to echo in this time stay healthy stay safe stay precautious i think uh, all of those things are important to do 
Okay, so let's maybe before diving into these eight lessons learned, let's take a look at from the triple trophy earner himself, uh, a recent roundtable. Yeah, if you want to have a seat here, pack one, pick one. We see the following cards as options. I think best blue common in the pack is Vexengol, two and a blue for the 2-2 Flash Flyer. Myers Grass, best common overall, one and a black for the Enchantment Aura. Enchanted Creature gets minus three, minus three. And those are really the only commons that stand out to me. Moving on to the uncommons, we've got some good ones. There's a Staggering Insight, blue-white for the Enchantment Aura, Enchant Creature. Enchanted Creature gets plus one, plus one, has lifelink, and whenever this creature deals combat damage to a player, draw a card. There's also a Ferris Band Brawler, 4GG for the 4-4. When it ETBs, it fights up to one target creature you don't control. And our rare in the pack, Erebos' Intervention, Black X, Instant, choose one, target creature gets minus X, minus X, and you gain X life, or exile up to twice X target cards from a graveyard. Have you ever used the second mode of Erebos' Intervention? I have not. I almost did in the draft league I played this deck in, but ended up not. So spoiler, I suppose you took that card out of this pack. Oh, yeah. Awkward. (laughs) No, that's fine. I think that's fairly straightforward. I mean, you're talking about like you now have a sense of like I could I know where these cards line up or where the gaps are. I do think Erebos's intervention is at the top. I'm curious where you're at on Myers Grasp, Insight and Brawler. I, I guess I assume Brawler is third there. So I guess between Insight and Myers Grasp, where are you at? I'm on Insight over Myers Grasp, I think. I think it leads to a deck and pushes you hard in a direction. And I think removal, like while Myers Grasp is premium removal, removal is something that you can come by in the set. Mm-hmm. And I think cards that are like a deck are of the utmost importance. And like f- there are a lot of ways to find Staggering Insight in blue as well. So I think I think I would be on Staggering Insight. And honestly, it was very close for me between Staggering Insight and Intervention. Mm-hmm. I think Insight might be a better card, but the fact that it's gold pushed me towards Intervention. Yeah, and I think our discovery of the multicolor deck or understanding how to use the tools like Thrill of Possibility, Thirst for Meaning, Traveler's Amulet, etc., that makes me feel like Staggering Insight isn't as pigeonholing as it might seem. I think, yeah, I would, would I prefer to be blue-white when I take that card first? Yes, but when I take it first and perhaps blue or white isn't open, but I can find myself, uh, I can find a way to get myself into a deck where this card is quite castable. Yep. And it really does say if you have other cards, that's the other thing, is there are ways to protect Staggering Insight in those colors like Starlet mm-hmm. Mantle or Karametra's Blessing that lets you protect your thing. So really, it does let you build your own Dream Trawler, which is very powerful. For sure. All right. So we did snap up the intervention. Moving on to pack one, pick two. You see the following cards as options. Best blue common, Omen of the Sea, one in a blue enchantment, Flash, when ETBs, Scry 2, draw a card, and then you can pay two in a blue, sack it to Scry 2. Our number two white common, Pious Wayfarer, single white for the one, two, whenever an enchantment enters the battlefield under your control, target creature gets plus one, plus one until end of turn. And then moving on to the uncommons, there's a Soul Guide Lantern, not in consideration here. Careless Celebrant, one in a red for the two, one, when it dies, it deals two damage to target creature or planeswalker and opponent controls. There's an Annex, Hardened in the Forge, one red, red for the star three, Power equal to your devotion to red, and whenever a creature you control dies, if its power was four or greater, you get two tokens, and if it was less than four, you get one satyr token that can't block. And that brings us to our rare in the pack, Storm's Wrath, two red red for the sorcery, deals four damage to each creature and each planeswalker. Yeah, so we were talking about this before the show, looking at this pack, and I think I'd be on Anax Hardened in the Forge looking at this pack, but uh, I think you have a different take here. Yeah, I think, so we were pretty down on both Wraths, in the format initially and i have since come around to the fact that they're just powerful cards you can find them pretty consistently and they they give you incentive to build a controlling deck red specifically has scofos war leader that 
combos very well with Storm's Wrath, and I think is just a great red card, like near the top three red commons for me if it's not in there already. Oh, wow. Um, it just does serious work. Four or five is a great body in this format, very good sizing. So I think all of that leads me to Storm's Wrath and the fact that Storm's Wrath is in the color with Thrill of Possibility. And just knowing that you can build a red control deck or a red multicolored deck with Thrill is really powerful. I mean, you're selling me. Obviously, I would love to build a control deck rather than beat down with Anax Hardened in the Forge. So I'm I'm down for taking Storm's Wrath here for sure. Yep, so we snapped that up. So we now got Storm's Wrath and Erebos's Intervention. Moving on to pack one, pick three. See the following cards as options. Best black card in the pack is Soul Reaper of Mogus. Two and a black for a 2-3 enchantment creature, and you can pay two and a black, sack a creature, draw a card. I was worried you were going to say Underworld Charger was the best black common in the pack. <laughs> no, it is not. Okay, good. <laughs> best and only red card in the pack, Flummox Cyclops. Three and a red for the 4-4 four, four with a reach. Whenever two or more creatures your opponents control attack, Flummox Cyclops can't block this turn. Best white card in the pack, Daybreak Chimera. Three white, white for the 3-3. Three, three. Costs X less to cast, where X is your devotion to white and has flying. And then moving on to the uncommons, there's a cling to dust. And honestly, that probably is better than Soul Reaper of Mogus, or at least on par. I don't mm-hmm. know. You, the first Soul Reaper is very good. Yeah, I agree. And then best card in the pack overall, Illyrios Enraptured. Two and a blue for the 2-3. When it ETBs, you make a 3-2 reflection token, and Illyrios enters tapped and doesn't untap until the reflection leaves the battlefield. Yeah, I think, as you said, best card in the pack is Illyrios, and we don't really have anything to compete with it. Like, So let's talk about tiebreakers here right you've got a black card and a red card so you're you don't have anything pulling you into either of those colors in this pack so that's why we're just taking the best card in a vacuum which is Illyrios. but like let's say myers grasp probably is myers grasp a worse card than Illyrios in raptured to you i think it's better than Illyrios. okay is final death worse or better than Illyrios? better is catablepus worse or better they're about on par i would take i would take catablepus here as a tiebreaker over Illyrios. right so i think that's important and we'll be talking about like pick orders in that way down the line as one of our lessons learned but that's the sort of thing you want to think about right so if you if you have all right well Illyrios probably slightly better than catablepus pack one pick one i i would say that that seems pretty clear to me like a three drop over a six drop and i think Illyrios is quite strong but we've already got Erebos's intervention in our pile so that's gonna make the pick a little closer right that's gonna bump up the value of a black card already because of the black card in our pile similarly with red like if Iroas's blessing were here that's probably just better than Illyrios period but what about like if incendiary oracle is here are you taking that over Illyrios it's close right that's hard right? I think I would still take Illyrios, but it's a lot closer. I think I agree with that. But that's, I think, how we're thinking about tiebreaker pick orders and why pick orders are important for when you are presented with a situation. Not quite like this, because we don't actually have that situation here, because Illyrios is just the clear pick based on power level of the pack and the low power level of the black and red cards that are here. And I think the other thing to note is that Erebos's intervention is splashable. I think that's one of the other reasons I'm, I'm more interested in drafting the format right now is that like early in the format I felt like I had no agency over what was happening to me in the draft and I feel like I have a lot more agency now and knowing that I can splash Airbus's intervention and I can pretty much do whatever I want that just feels way more comfortable to me obviously <laughs> I mean that's a good feeling <laughs> no of course I mean I think that was one of our complaints early in the format is like well there weren't really build arounds and so it didn't feel it felt like you just needed to find your lane quickly and then there was also this like mini game of figuring out how to draft black or this game of chicken of drafting black, which I don't feel like is the case. It feels like things have sort of settled pretty much in that respect, or maybe even swung hard in another direction at times. But this 
introduction of understanding it doesn't have to be full five color nonsense, but just knowing about that that thrill and thirst and amulet and all of these tools are there for you to splash around and have more agency over the draft in building a, a strong deck with a plan. I think that makes the format a lot more fun. Yep, for sure. So we did snap up the Illyrios there. So now have black card, red card, blue card in the intervention, Storm's Wrath and Illyrios. Moving on to pack one, pick four, see the following cards as options. There's a thrill of possibility. There's also Storm Herald as, as our rare. Two in a red for the 3-2 with haste. And when it ETBs, you can return any number of aura cards from your graveyard to the battlefield. And then you exile those at your next end step. Just say important safety tip here. Don't return Myers Grasp. Don't return Dreadful Apathy because they have to attach to your creatures. Yeah. <laughs> is, that, is that something you've done before? No, no, no. But I have my opponent shatter paws after they clicked Myers Grasp out of their own graveyard. Oh, no. Yeah, not not a good feeling. There's also, as far as white cards go here, there's three white cards in the pack. Best of them is a hero of the pride, a one and a white for the two, two. And whenever you cast a spell that targets it, creatures you control get plus one plus oh until end of turn. Next to nothing as far as black. There's only a discordant piper in the pack. So not interested in that. Yeah. So I think this comes down to what's the best card in the pack, which is probably Storm Herald, at least this early, being able to to try and build around it. Or maybe Hero of the Pride, though I think I would take Storm Herald over it, especially since we already have a red card. Though Storm Herald and Storm's Wrath don't quite maybe go in the same deck together. They're, they're a little at odds as Storm's Wrath is more of a controlling card and Storm Herald more of an aggressive card. But, you know, it's hard for me not to just be eyeing this thrill of possibility, especially after you mentioned how good it is with a, a red base multicolor deck. We've got a couple cards worth splashing. We've got a Wrath already. So Thrill works well with the Wrath as it like digs you towards it. Or when the Wrath isn't good, you can pitch it like... Is Thrill of Possibility just the pick here? Are we going too deep, Ben? I don't think so. I, I jammed Thrill of Possibility quite happily here for all the reasons you mentioned. I think Storm's Wrath is one of the biggest incentives to draft a base red Thrill deck. Yeah, I agree. So draft rounded out, snapped up an Underworld Rage Hound, pack one, pick five. Next next pick, pick six, I took a Threnody Singer over a Hero of the Pride. Pick seven, snapped up a Hero of the Pride out of an empty pack. So that's three Hero of the Prides in your first seven picks. Yeah, and I was seriously considering audibling into red-white at one point. Uh, we flirted with being white as part of our multicolored deck. Ultimately ended up settling into a fairly normal-looking blue-red deck, splashing double black omen and Erebos's intervention. And if you had told me I was going to be splashing two black omens at the start of the format, I would have told you you were nuts. But I think it's just a very, very good card. And if you have some high value targets to get back, which I did, I had a Shimmerwing Chimera and a Tectonic Giant, and both of those were very worth getting back. And I just had sort of a low creature count in general, plus plus the Wombo combo with Shimmerwing Chimera. Right. Shimmerwing Chimera plus Omen of the Dead is such a good little combo. It feels pretty dirty. All right. Well, that's going to move us into our main topic here. Top eight Lords of Limited lessons learned. And I think we'll, we'll be hearkening the farthest back here with the first one to our 23rd episode of Making Your Own Luck. I think this was a pretty defining episode for us. And, and it's a topic that we both feel, I think, pretty passionate about. And there's a lot of ways that this manifests itself for Magic players. There's a lot of things that I think can be chalked up to variants. But if you dig a little deeper, you perhaps have more agency over those events than you might think. So what, what are some of those things that, that come about when you think about making your own luck in Magic, Ben? Well, the first one is the one that you make fun of me for all the time, which is focusing on the quote, good deck passing you by. 
uh, which is an opportunity maybe to check to see if you were supposed to audible into that or, you know, pick up, make a certain pick different in the draft that would have let you go down that route that is now passing you by because you passed too many good cards of that, that color or whatever the case may be. But rather than saying, you know, why me? Why am I not drafting this blue black deck? When you're reviewing the draft log, was there an avenue for you to get into the blue black? Okay, if so, change your pick orders, make adjustments for the next time around. And if there wasn't, it's not in your control. Keep doing the thing you're doing and, and focus on making your deck the best you can. Right. I think my, one of my biggest pet peeves about this is from... You can, just, you can just say it. Your biggest pet peeves about me. Go ahead. No, no, no. <laughs> well, so I think the example you're giving is great for how do you turn this into something positive? So I think if you're saying like, oh man, this deck is passed. I'm seeing this blue white deck pass me by. Well, then go and check the draft log and think like, oh, should I have moved in at this point or at this point? Was this the the point where I'm undervaluing Pious Wayfarer as a signal to get into white? Was that what I was supposed to do or not? And the other thing that I think really bothers me when this happens is like, let's say you have a great red black deck that you're drafting. And then people are pointing out, man, the blue white deck going by like, okay, but why does that matter? We have a good deck. We're, we're drafting an open deck for our seat. The energy you're spending on like thinking about the blue white deck that's going by seems wasted to me, especially if there's nothing fruitful to come of that discussion. Yeah, absolutely makes sense. So, I, you know, for me, I think back to, you know, and this seems silly in retrospect, but Ravnica Allegiance, Blade Juggler ended up, I think, being the best common in that set overall. But early on, I don't think people were quite there. But seeing that card, like pick five, pick six, once that happened a couple drafts for me, when I was like, by pack three being like, oh man, I missed out on a really good Rakdos deck, going back to my draft logs and going, that fifth pick Blade Juggler, that was the signal for me. That was the the way for me to get into black, that's how you use that information for good to go, okay, I got to bump this card up in my pick order and recognize it as a signal for this deck. So speaking of the old Ravnica Legions, you jammed a bunch of that on Jamie's stream yesterday. How are the old arena bots? Uh, they're pretty good. It seems like it's the same. You know, I guess this is going to be the, the ranked draft for the next two weeks or whatever-ish from when the, this show goes out. And it seems about the same as the last iteration. Like you can get the the Dovin's Acuity or High Alert decks. That seems to be fairly open. Soraform Hybrid underrated. So, you know, blue-green or, or green-red beats seems to be underrated. And and Orzov goodies like Grasping Thrall and Final Payment are going late. So it seems to be about the same things being underrated from the last iteration. Yeah, we have got to get Theros Beyond Death as the ranked draft option always. It's so absurd. I was watching your stream yesterday and I was like, ah, I don't want to do a Magic Online draft because we were going to record today and I didn't want to mm -hmm. have to play all three rounds. Like we're going to do one of our Lords of Limited showdown videos. So we have to not be in the middle of the league when we do that. So I was like, I'll, I'll play some Theros Beyond Death on Arena. Nope. Yeah. If you, you want to lose the next three hours of your life playing six rounds of best of three. Yeah, that was rough. So the other point about making your own luck here, I think, is choosing how to respond to bad circumstances or choosing an attitude or choosing a way to think about things that that I think a lot of folks just chalk up to variance, like your opponent keeps top decking or I keep having to mulligan. Well, if your opponent keeps top decking, are there things in the game that you've done that have led them to this state of the game? Like, did you fire off a removal spell too early? Did you incorrectly identify who the beatdown was and maybe attack one more turn than you should have? Or you didn't turn the corner a turn earlier than you should have or whatever? Or if you keep mulliganing, are you building sketchy mana bases? Do you have too many lands, too few lands? Like, really try and... I think a, a lot, because this game is so variance-heavy, I think you can often chalk a lot of things up to luck or whatever. But if you dig a little deeper, I think there are decisions that you make that influence 
that sort of variance being, uh, you know, feels like it's magnified or whatever. Yeah. And one of the things that we did in this episode that I, I really love, and if you haven't listened to this episode, you should go back and listen to it. Like, do yourself a favor. It will help you with magic and it will help you with life. I was literally just talking to my students on Thursday. We were out of school on Friday due to the coronavirus. Uh, just about the power of choosing your attitude. And it's it's one of the hardest things to do in life is to, like, it's so easy to feel bad or feel sorry mm-hmm. for yourself or fall into that or fall into people around you who have that same attitude. And the idea that, like, you know, there's there's people who are thermostats and there are people are who are thermometers. And what I mean by that is, like, people who are thermometers, like, if, if they come into a room and there's a bad vibe they're going to have that same bad vibe. And people who are thermostats have the ability to change the attitude of people around them. And it's really hard to choose to be a thermostat and to choose to come in with a positive attitude and to and to do all the things we're talking about with magic where you're you're trying to improve as opposed to blame bad luck. And I think that's a, a really powerful life skill and it's really hard. And it's so easy to say to choose your attitude, but it's so hard to do. Like building any kind of habit, there's like those steps of like, you know, you're you're not doing it and you're unaware of it. You're not doing it and you're aware of it. You're doing it and you're aware of it. And then you're doing it and you're unaware of it. Like those are the four stages of trying to to build a habit. And I think that's it's sort of like that. Like, I think for me, I'm in this stage of like recognizing that I have, I get a bad attitude or whatever and realizing I should be trying to change that. And that's hard, but the, getting into that mindset of being aware of it, I think is really important. Yep. Recognizing it's the first step and then making the choice to change it. That's the even harder part. For sure. All right. Next episode, we want to harken back to episode 51, building mana bases. I think, you know, in the discord in general or on stream, if people submit decks, the number one problem is a mana base, like people either being too greedy and wanting to jam cards in there that aren't impactful enough at too high of a cost of their mana base, or just like wrong numbers of lands or thinking they should splash some cards that aren't really worth splashing due to the cost of the mana base. There's just a a lot of ways that mana impacts your win rate in limited. I feel very passionate about this because I feel like I get a bad rap because I want to do multicolor good stuff all the time. And I think people see me like splashing around and they come into my stream. They're like, oh, only four colors. What happened or whatever? I am a very responsible mana base builder. <laughs> I think this is one of the things that I do very well. And I also understand like when to splash cards, like what makes an impactful card worth it for that cost to your mana base. So I'm not just like doing this willy nilly, even though I think it looks irresponsible to the untrained eye. So I I definitely, this is one of my biggest problems. And I will will second your your thing of like when, when I see people submit decks or post decks on Twitter or Discord or in my stream, that's one of the first things I see. I'm like, I, this mana base is a yikes. Like how did we end up here? So not even talking about color requirements per se i think starting off understanding like number of lands like knowing what the norm of the format is that's one of the things we try and identify early sometimes is like is this a 17 land 18 land 16 land format and what are the sorts of things that dictate that to you as sort of a a format in general but then also in a specific sense for a deck by deck basis i think format speed you know the faster the format the less lands you're going to want the slower the format the more lands you're going to want and then just Apart from that, sometimes it goes into colored sources. Like sometimes you just need 
based on whatever you're splashing or whatever, more lands to hit your numbers of sources to reliably be able to cast your cards. Yeah, and they're thinking about mana sinks or amount of card draw that you have or card filtering, like what are the ways your deck loses is a, is a way I often think about like, well, the way I feel like my deck is going to lose is if I stumble on land. So that makes me want more lands or the way I feel like this deck loses is if I flood out. So that's going to make me want less lands. Um, and what sort of heuristics do you use for splashing cards? And I think that sort of maybe goes out the window a little bit with Theros Beyond Death, which we can talk about. But but at a base level, what are your thoughts? Yeah, in a normal format, if I'm splashing one card, I want three sources. So that either be like three lands or two lands and a way to search up a land or one land and two ways to search up that land like that would be a source. And then if I have two cards, four sources, if I have three cards, five sources, and once you get into three cards, five sources, you're not really <laughs> splashing anymore, right? in my opinion. Like you're just kind of doing a multicolored deck that's going to have some significant mana constraints. Mm -hmm. So there are significant costs to a bad mana base for sure. So I want to throw out, and I think this has been our new hotness or what's sort of injected new life into the format for us but why does the multicolor deck work so well in theros beyond death and are there things from this format that you think these are things we should apply elsewhere like thrill of possibility or unknown shores have we been underrating those cards in other sets or is this set unique for those cards i think this sets the exception for those cards not the rule but there there are factors that could come together in future formats that i think would be worth paying attention to so the first thing is that the bombs are really bomby right the best 20 cards cards in the set are significantly better than the next best 20 cards in the set, which are also still very good. Right. But not insane, you know? So the fact that the filtering helps you find those cards is important. And then the format is on the slower side, right? It's probably like a seven or an eight out of 10. Yes, there's the white red aggro deck. Yes, you know, your opponent can curve out with Underworld Rage Hound and a blue red tempo deck and stomp you down. But most of the time, you're going to have time to cast your thrills and filter and maybe miss a color for a while and then when you do get there on turn eight nine ten the fact that you get to cast that very powerful card makes up for the fact that you missed that land drop right the, the cards are so powerful that it doesn't matter when they come down they have such a significant impact on the game yeah for sure I, I think also the fact that there are five ways to fix at common and three of them are colorless lends to this this deck being more viable than it normally would be yeah that makes a ton of sense all right let's take a look at point number three this is uh from our episode 77 drafting aggro with ryan Sachs, but the the point here that i think is the biggest takeaway for me is building a deck with optimism so what does that mean i think you know there's an idea of best case scenario mentality in magic as a bad thing right like when you're looking at a card and you're picturing its best case and then you think oh this card's great i need to pick it highly because it's always going to do this thing you know the idea of magical christmas land that you always accuse me of when i'm arguing for my points in our crash courses <laughs> that's the word <laughs> yeah well, like in Inspire Awe is Plague Wind, right? Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. I, you know how many Inspire Awe's I've cast in the format? Zero. Zero. <laughs> yeah, like I said. <laughs> did I argue that I was going to cast it? I think I did. I'm probably. pretty sure I told you you would never cast the card. You are right so far. Also, green's terrible. So, I mean, what can we say? <laughs> but I also think there's a flip side to that where people don't think about it enough, right? I do think... When you're getting to your 20 through 23rd cards in a deck, you want to be optimistic about those cards, right? Like in this episode, we talked about Gird for Battle, which on its face is not a powerful card. If you put that on Quadrant Theory, it fails the Quadrant Theory test, right? It's single white for a sorcery, put a plus one plus one counter on each of up to two target creatures. But in an aggressive deck in that format with Mentor was a very strong card, right? But you and I are just averse to that type of card because we grew up on 
limited resources, quadrant theory, have consistent card quality throughout your deck. But I think I think that goes out the window a little bit when you are pushing harder in a direction, when you're pushing towards aggro or you're pushing towards control. Yeah. So this sort of blew my mind in the episode, and I'll, I'll sort of reiterate what I said then. It was, you know, when I build control decks or multicolor decks, I'm building those with optimism as well, right? I'm assuming that I'm going to get to that late game and I'm putting the tools in that deck to get there, but I'm assuming I'm going to be able to cast my powerful spells. And similarly, when you build an aggro deck, a card like Gert for Battle, I think you want to build that deck with optimism thinking, well, this card is going to be great. It's going to, you know, pump up a creature to enable another mentor to enable attacks with creatures now that they're larger. Like that's how you want to think about those decks. And I think you want to build decks with optimism in general, even if you're building a mid-range deck. One of the things I think I see too often is people sort of building decks and then putting cards in that are sort of like insurance policies. Like, well, what if I flood? I want to put this thirst for meaning in my aggro deck. Or what if I'm in a race? I want to put this Nexus Wardens in my red-green beatdown deck. Or Dream Shaper Shaman as my top end for a red-white heroic deck. Like, those are cards that I don't believe belong in, in those decks that I've listed. I think, you know, you want your red green beatdown deck to have a three three for three not a one four for three you want your aggro blue green constellation deck to just curve out you don't want to have i think a thirst for meaning if you want to draw cards maybe have an omen of the sea in there instead but i think you want to be building decks with like a really strong game plan and we have a lot of episodes about this like we have drafting with a plan we had our making the final cut episode 125 we've talked about this in a variety of ways but i think too often people are not building decks with that in mind i think when you get to the end of the draft you should be able to like put a label on your deck in terms of where it is on the aggro to control spectrum what its game plan is and what cards don't fit in that game plan they should not be in there as a well what if this happens that's what sideboarding is for yeah, and and noting that putting Nexus Wardens in your red-green deck, yes, if you end up in a race against Flyers, could help you out. But if you have that card main deck, it can also lose you games too because it can't attack. And getting in that three damage twice with your Hyrax Tower Scout could be the difference in that game. Like building your deck with, okay, you know, same as you would build a control deck, I'm going to get to the late game. Build your aggro deck with, yes, I'm going to close this game out and get in the last few points to kill my opponent, and it's going to be close, and I need to make sure all of my cards contribute towards that goal. Yeah. 100% agree. And then so if we're talking about this, you know, drafting with a plan idea and and pushing in a direction, and I do think, you know, as limited going forward, and there are more and more playables, and we're getting more playable one drops, the the saying that every deck is shade of mid range still true, but I think it's definitely more possible now than it was five, six, seven years ago, to push harder in the aggro direction and to push harder in the control direction. I think I think that spectrum is getting a lot wider. I think that's a really smart point, Ben. Yeah, I, I agree with that for sure. I mean, th- just thinking about even how I liked Pious Wayfair at the start of the format, but I was still a little skeptical of it and just how strong that card is. We're seeing more and more cards like that in every set. Yeah, and I think if you're doing that, you want to be able to say, my deck is trying to do this at the end of the draft, or my cards contribute towards this goal. And and make sure all your cards do contribute towards that goal. That when I'm when I'm making, you know, what's the cut suggestions in the Discord, that's what I ask myself. Like, what is this deck trying to do? Which cards don't belong? Okay, this card, this card, this card. Are there any cards in the sideboard that get me closer to that goal? Yes. Okay, great. Let's get those in there. And your deck doesn't it doesn't have to be like I'm a red-white beatdown deck. Your game plan could be as simple as I'm casting Dream Trawler. And then every other 22 cards in your deck need to contribute towards that game plan. Yeah, like you can't have a thirst for meaning in your sideboard if Dream Trawler's in your deck. Exactly, right? Your deck is 
dig to that card, survive to casting it, and cast it. Right. I had some people knocking on, uh, I forget what deck it was, but it was definitely a deck that had red in it, and it was going to the late game. And I had Thaumaturge's Familiar in over Blood Aspirant, which in a vacuum, Blood Aspirant's a much more powerful card, right? Much cooler, has an ability, gets counters. But my deck was controlling. Like, Blood Aspirant is essentially a 1-1. I didn't have cards that I was interested in sacrificing. I didn't have omens. Thaumaturge's Familiar stabilized my board a little bit and dug me towards my more powerful cards. It was it was a much better include in the deck. I think another card that I th- trips people up is Final Flare. I often see that in some red-green beatdown decks, like two copies of Final Flare. And I look through and I don't really see any omens and I don't see a ton of blessings. And I think to myself, what are you sacrificing to this? You don't want to you know, you're not trying to go two drop, three drop, four drop, and then go, aha, I two for one myself so I can have a removal spell. Like that is not part of your game plan. Maybe one of those, but if you don't have the support for it, you don't want to be taking away from your board presence if your deck is a curve out deck. Right. And you can't, and you also don't want to be relying on like having to time it out when your opponent uses a removal spell and you have three mana up. Like it's just not a good scenario. Yeah. I mean, the card is very powerful and very strong. And I think it excels in the multicolor decks because they have so many omens. But I think uh, I think it can trip people up in in more streamlined, assertive decks. Yeah. Moving on to our next topic or our next level up, Mulligan Decisions, which was episode 128. So we are now in the world of the London Mulligan. Paris Mulligan is gone. What does that mean for Mulligan Limited? You know, I was thinking about this when it first came out and I wasn't making any different considerations. I recognize that London Mulligan is much better for limited, but it wasn't causing me to mulligan any more or any less. But I think if it was going to tip to either of those scales, it should be to mulligan more because choosing six from seven is much better than you know seeing six and then getting a scry. But it hasn't really caused me to make a ton of different decisions, except I feel like sometimes when my deck has a clear game plan, I can mulligan a little bit more. You know, If I have those assertive decks... I really want my opening hand to matter, right? Because that's the majority of the cards I'm going to see for the game. And while limited, I think, is about card quantity more than it's about card quality. Like, I think mulligan decisions are much more important in constructed than they are in limited. Like, in limited, you just generally want raw resources. Um, But in aggro decks, I do feel like your opening hand matters a lot. So that's when I found myself using the London Mulligan a little bit more aggressively. Right, because you want to get to a hand that does curve out and do the thing. Right. I'm much more likely with Paris Mulligan to be like, well, my first creature is a three drop. That sucks, but I'm just going to do it. Whereas London Mulligan, I might go, look, I've got a ton of twos and even some pious wayfarers. Maybe I need to mulligan into a hand that's going to let me curve out a bit more. So if we're talking about general, you know, mulliganing heuristics or things to think about while you're looking at a hand, what are what are some things that go through your mind when you're looking about keeping or mulliganing a hand? Well, this is sort of a holdover from the Paris mulligan when you would go down from seven to six. But I do still think about it here. Like, let's say you've got a seven card hand, but one of the cards is you know, maybe a a card you're splashing and you don't have any of your fixing in your current hand. But the other six cards outside of that card you're splashing are strong. Like they're good. They're going to let you affect the board. They're going to let you work towards your game plan. I think thinking about, well, I've got this six. If I were to mulligan, I'd have to go down to six. So the six that I'm keeping, is this better than, you know, a random configuration of six cards that I would keep? So I I use that as some somewhat of a tiebreaker when I'm considering mulliganing. Yeah, that makes sense. I think another thing you can ask yourself is, do you need to hit both lands and spells? Like, do you need to find a colored mana source and good cards? Like, if you're having to do both of those things, it's probably a mulligan. And sometimes even if you need to do one of those things, depending on how many hits you have in your deck, 
you're looking at mulliganing. But generally needing to hit both of those things, pretty much a disaster. On the flip side of that, I would say if your hand has lands and spells, that doesn't automatically mean it's a keep. You know, if you think about a hand like Sentinel's Eyes, Indomitable Will, Daybreak Chimera, and then like two planes, two forests, that's a tough sell as a keep because you basically have a five drop. Like, yes, you have lands and spells, but two of those require you to have a creature, and the first creature you have currently is a five drop. Right. And so then for deciding whether to keep or mull that hand, I would want to know how many two and three drops do I have in my deck? If I've got pretty good odds, you know, of drawing a two or a three drop, you know, put that stuff in the odds calculator, the hypergeometric calculator, use the odds exclamation point on Twitch. And if you can do that for lands, you know, it makes sense to do it for two and three drops in a scenario like that for an opening hand. Yeah, I think that's used a lot for lands, but not used nearly as much as it should be for figuring out hitting creatures like before turn four or whatever. Right. And you also want to know, you know, in games two and three, you have a lot more information about your opponent's deck and what your game plan needs to be to win versus your opponent's deck. So you can keep slower hands versus slower decks, but, you know, you can't do that game one. Or, you know, if you're an aggro deck and you know your opponent has a great late game, you might need to mulligan for a very aggressive hand to try to win the game. Yeah, I'm more inclined to keep some sketchier hands on the draw because I feel like I have more outs to to draw into lands if I'm thinking about, you know, we always talk about if you've got a couple two drops in hand, keeping a one lander on the draw is pretty correct because you're about 75 per hit. You're about 75% to hit that second land on time. If your first play is turn four, maybe you have to keep that on the play because you don't want to mulligan, but you really can't afford to keep that on the draw because it's too slow. Yeah. Do you ever factor whether or not your opponent has mulliganed? Like if you're on the draw, does that influence your decision to keep your mull ever? Yeah, it depends, right? Like if my opponent has mulliganed on the play and I'm on the draw, it depends what I think the matchup is like. Uh, that's going to be more impactful in games two or three for me. Um, but it does influence my decision. I think if my opponent has mulliganed, I'm more inclined to mulligan myself if my hand is a borderline hand because I don't need to worry about being down on a resource as much. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And then if you have mulliganed, how do you choose what cards to keep, right? How do you choose which of your seven or which two of your seven you have to pitch? I think in general, I'm thinking, what's my game plan going to be for this matchup or for my deck? And once I'm down cards, I'm a lot more inclined to try to keep more powerful cards rather than trying to curve out, right? Like if you're going two drop, three drop, but they're not impactful, your two drops not impactful, I'm shipping a vanilla two two a lot of the times and just being willing to start on turn three. So it's it's all very context dependent. It's hard to give good heuristics for that. Yeah, for sure. I think you just really want to think about think about the matchup, think about who's on the player of the draw, who's the beat down, mapping out your turns. That's really important with any opening hand, but I think becomes even more important as you're down resources, like sculpting that opening six or five for yourself to figure out what do I what am I going to have to do here? Like I think uh, oftentimes if you've got multiple three drops you're choosing between well then you really need to think like what do i want to do what i'm going to play this two drop and then which of these threes am i more likely to want to play after that and then the one that you're not choosing that's the one you probably got to ship to the bottom yep brings us to our next level up moment which is another early episode episode 26 drafting with preferences this is probably my biggest level up as a limited player since we've started the show so huge shout out to ryan Sachs for bringing this concept to us and also, I think one of the ones that gets twisted the most, yeah. too, somehow. It really does. I, I I feel like this was the first time I heard of this, and now it feels like it's out in the ether. Like, people use this phrase a lot. And so I, I'm not saying that that's attributed to us. That may just be, like, the magic community latching on to this phrase. But I do feel like it gets applied in a lot of instances where I don't think it relates to what Ryan told us about. Right. So there is forcing, right? And forcing is generally bad, like 95% of the time, 
pretty bad. Drafting with preferences is not forcing, but sometimes people do force and say, well, no, I'm just drafting with preferences, which is no, you're not. That's not really what you're doing. Right. It's like I have a preference for this card, pack one, pick one. So I'm going to take it. I'm like, I mean, I guess that's fine. But like, this is just an objectively worse card than this other card you're passing. Right. So I think when you're doing this, you're trying to do one of two things. One is giving yourself the best chance to end up in whatever the best decks in the format are. So like, for example, in War of the Spark, it it would take a really good green or white card mm-hmm. to get me to not draft one of the Grixis color pairs. Did I do it? Yes, all the time. Not all the time, but when it was appropriate, I did it. And my green and white decks, I didn't draft very much, but they frequently would trophy or do very well because I was only doing it when I was really supposed to be doing it. So just just making sure you're trying to steer yourself towards whatever the best decks are in the format. I think you can also talk about this as biasing towards underdrafted decks in the format as well. Like, you know, thinking about how metagames shift in limited, you know, when the multicolor green deck in Hour of Devastation was overdrafted, going like, yeah, I see this Oasis Ritualist, but I'm pretty sure I'm going to fight over it with five other people at the table. So I'm just going to let it go by and bias towards other color pairs. And I think that can be said for, you know, maybe blue red in Theris Beyond Death, maybe not now, but at certain points or or red white at certain points in the format. Like there are those niches where you go, yeah, I recognize I'm taking a hidden power level, but my feeling is that I'm going to get into this deck more often than not. So I'm going to bias myself towards that. Right. That was one of the things I feel like we missed out on you and I in this format. I feel like other formats since we've started the podcast, we have been like on the front edge of the metagame. And I think Uh we were I felt like we were almost a week behind this week. Like when everyone was fighting over black, you know, ham TV was drafting red, white and smashing everyone. And then people were on red, white and he shifted to blue, red. Like, I don't think we were the drivers of the metagame. We were sort of reporting what other people had discovered, which was odd. And I think didn't let us take advantage of these underdrafted decks. Like I was still fighting over black, I think, when it was not the right thing to be doing. Right. I think we were still thinking that the like, will they, won't they draft black metagame? I think we thought that was still the thing weeks after people were like, nah, we don't care about black anymore. We're doing other things. (laughs) Right. And then there's also a a world where you're biasing yourself towards a deck that you're going to pilot well. Maybe you're way better at playing an aggressive deck and sequencing those early turns than you are getting the late game. Or maybe you're way better at putting some defensive speed in your deck and, you know, making more decisions over the course of the long game. It's going to give you an edge. So getting into a deck with cards that you like, a strategy that you like, you're going to pilot a little bit better. I think that one's a little looser than trying to just get into the borderline base decks, right? If you want your win rate to be as high as possible, you need to be comfortable playing decks across the whole spectrum. I agree with that. I think it's important to know, as Ryan said in the episode, to know what your preferences and your biases are and your strengths are, because at a certain point, this is a game. And if you're going to have fun playing the game, you're going to do better at it than if you're struggling, you know, if you're not having fun or if you have a deck that you aren't excited to play. So I think it's just being aware of that when all things are equal. So you you can say, well, all things being equal, then I'm going to choose the things that I would prefer to do. Yeah, that that makes absolute sense to me. And so and just uh, to reiterate, this is not forcing. You're not taking whatever. I don't know. You're not taking Thrill of Possibility over Myers Grasp because you want to draft the multicolored deck. Right. You're aware of what you're being passed. You're aware of strong pick orders. You're not ignoring the deck that's quote unquote open for your seat or ignoring the intrinsic power level of certain cards, even if they're in perhaps weaker color or color pairs than you would like to draft. And I think to really employ this strategy successfully, you need to have strong pick orders and you need to be able to say, okay, I know I'm taking a slightly weaker card here 
but it's going to pay off in the long run because I'm going to get into a better deck or I'm more likely to get into a better deck. That That's the crux of it to me. Well, that couldn't be a better transition to point number six here, Ben, which is why pick orders are super important to have in your mind, how to adjust them, and when to deviate from them. And this comes from our 60th episode, Getting Good at Limited with Ari Lax. Yeah, I think there's a bit of a stigma about pick orders because because of the saying, you know, teach a man to fish, he fishes for the rest of his life, give a man a fish, he eats for a day or whatever. And I think there's this this feeling that pick orders are, you know, giving a person a fish, quote unquote. And I I just don't think that could be further from the truth. I think establishing your own pick orders forces you to think critically about the format. And then once you've established your own pick orders, it enables you to have discussions with other people that have established their own pick orders and then try to come to a consensus. And there is ultimately like towards the, you know, middle to end of a format, a lot closer of a consensus that we come to as as a community and then it's easier to read signals and things like that but i do think pick orders are are very very important and i i don't think it's as dumbed down as people think now using a week one pick order in week seven that's terrible yes yeah that's that's like actively harmful to your win rate but constantly being willing to evaluate and update them a plus good stuff right so a problem with pick orders i think that ari mentions in the episode is that people don't adjust them or the pick orders that people are using are generally from like even week zero evaluations, like before people get their hands on the cards. And as we'll talk about in a little bit, that's like basically the most important thing for helping you adjust your evaluations of cards is is seeing them in the context and in gameplay. Um, so, you know, that's the reason pick orders get a stigma is that I think people just want the, the quick and dirty, easy answer and don't quite consider the thought process behind it. Like, well, all right, pack one, pick one, this card versus this card, and you get an answer and fine. That feels like you're eating a fish for a day, right? That doesn't feel like you're getting to be taught how to fish. Like, why is this card better than the other one when we put them in in the arena? There's a lot of considerations, right, about color preferences or color power, color pairs, synergy. You know, there's like intrinsically powerful cards that don't quite fit into any of the archetypes that that color has to offer. All of that stuff goes into figuring out, you know, card evaluations and, and ultimately pick orders. And I think when you're trying to figure out those pick orders, you're trying to figure out where gaps in power are, right? Like you're trying to group cards together so that you understand when you're making a pick, whether or not you're taking a hit in power and how much of a hit you're taking in power. And that's what lets you make those informed decisions to draft with preferences. And, and you can even also get into your grittier decisions about like, is lightning strike versus higher cage, you know, an O-ring type effect, which one of those is more valuable? Yes, they're both Bs, but are, is one of them better in the context of the format? Why, when are you going to pick one over the other? Just all, all those sorts of things. And this is one of the reasons we're so focused on the top three commons for each color and reevaluating that list week to week. Like, I'm going to keep talking about this card, but understanding how good Pious Wayfarer is feels like a key to understanding white as a color, which leads you towards more, more cohesive, powerful decks and leads you towards, well, once I have this card rated highly, then all the other cards start to fall into place, like Sentinel's Eyes, like Transcendent Envoy, etc. Right. And I think that's one of the best things we do as a Lords of Limited community in the Discord is establish those things for ourselves, have conversations about them, and then reevaluate. And I think there's a lot of learning that goes on through that process in the Discord. Agree. So that's going to bring us to point number seven, which is working to understand a format when it doesn't click with you initially. And I think this is probably how we both felt about Theros Beyond Death. Yeah, definitely. This has been my worst 
I think my worst format since we've started the podcast. My win rate is still not as good as it was in Dom. Those are the two since we've started the podcast that I have really struggled with. And we haven't done an actual episode about this, but I've just been thinking about it a lot more as a result of Theros not going well initially and then turning it around now for myself and why that has happened. And I still don't think it's, you know, a wonderful format, but I do think it's an above average format, like slightly, and it's certainly not a bad format. And I think, you know, just some some takeaways for myself is to not write a format off in the first 20 drafts or something, which is, which is again, like all these things are intertwined, right? Harkens back to making your own luck and the idea yeah. of choosing your attitude, right? It's easy when you're losing in the first 20 drafts to say, well, I'm losing because this format's bad, right? I, I'm a good magic player. There's something wrong with this format. And that's just not the case, right? And I, I'm aware of that, but it's easy to have that defense mechanism and push back. And I think that's just actively harmful to your understanding of the format in the long run. Yeah, I think I agree with that. I think the worse your record is, the more you need to engage in discussions and things like Discord, Twitter, talking to people who are winning. You know, I feel so incredibly fortunate for our Discord, but more specifically that I have access to like, you know, the people who are consistently at the top of the trophy leaderboard. I get to talk to you. I get to talk to quarter calls, beers, SC, DC sports eight. I get to engage with Opa on Twitter or in Twitch or Kyle Rose, like getting to have access to those people in these various mediums and not taking advantage of that, especially when you're losing, I think is a, a real leak in your game. Right. But that's when it's the hardest, right? It's it's natural when things are going badly to want to shut yourself off and to not want to engage in discussion because you don't want to admit that you're <laughs> doing terribly or whatever. Sure. I mean, you got to get over your own ego and, and make the grown up decision and say, you know, I'm going to tell these people I'm struggling. Here's why. Like, what can you do to help me out? What pointers can you give me? Yeah. And I think being so open to people's evaluations, you know, I think quarter calls is one of the best. I think he's a, just a fantastic card evaluator in general in, in sort of a vacuum in terms of before the set comes out. But then he's also the most adaptive player I've seen. He's constantly reevaluating his pick orders and making some like what seems at times like hot takes, but really having justifications for them. And I think that is invaluable as as part of our community. And I think just like he's very public about that. Th- those are the things that are, I think are most important in following the flow of a format. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I think one of the one of the bigger takeaways for me for both of these formats is that despite it seeming like, you know, rares are powerful or uncommons are powerful. And I think a common thing that both of these formats have is gaps in power level between the cards right the best cards are way better than the next best cards are way better than the next best cards there are still ways that the commons work to your advantage in a format and finding out what that way that the commons work is 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 critical to understanding and ultimately having fun and having success in those formats and just being able to think critically about why the commons are good or how they can help you out and talk to other people about it is the crux of that problem to me and so for dominaria my level up moment was when I realized that a lot of the format revolved around tempo and double spelling and the blink of an eye was insanely good because people were tapping out for these five and six drops that were really powerful. And if you got in underneath them or you could cast two spells in one turn, you could leverage that to your advantage. And I think in Theros Beyond Death, it's understanding all the filtering and getting towards the bombs and getting towards the cards that matter. And that, you know, even if you don't have a high density of those cards, you can consistently find them and fuel them. Yeah, preach. And that takes us to our last level up here, which is card evaluation in general, which was episode 80. And you came up with this vast method for the podcast. So that acronym stands for V is the vanilla test. 
A is analog comparisons, so cards that are similar to other cards like fight variants or burn variants or whatever. And then the S is set context, which we just recently did a whole episode on, like evaluating the Theros commons in the context of the set. And then the last, the T is testing the cards out in game. And I think this method is excellent. And one realization I had when I was thinking about Theros Beyond Death is I need to spend way more time focusing on the S and the T, like cards in the context of the set and playing with them in game. And to start relying less on things like the vanilla test, analog comparisons, and quadrant theory. You know, I think quadrant theory from limited resources is one of the, it is the best tool to evaluate cards in limited bar none. It was my very first episode of limited resources and it was life-changing. You know, and whenever I found that 10, 12 years ago or whatever it was, it leveled me up immensely. But I think now that I've crossed the hump into a better limited player and I can do that without thinking about it so much, I need to stop writing cards off as bad when they don't hold up on the vanilla test or they don't hold up on, you know, the quadrant theory test. It's it's very possible to have good cards in the context of your deck that aren't intrinsically powerful cards or good cards in the context of the set that aren't intrinsically powerful cards, right? Would I have gotten to Thrill of Possibility sooner if that were the first time I'd ever seen Thrill of Possibility? Probably, maybe. I don't know. I hope so. It's really hard. And it's, it's so funny because going back to Hour of Devastation last week had me looking at Tormenting Voice and Traveler's Amulet in a totally different light. Because I remember those cards being, yeah, well, you play Tormenting Voice and Blue Red Spells and Amulet was like if you wanted to build around Impending Doom or something like those cards just had a whole new look for me going back to that set. And were they better in that set, do you think, than we gave them credit for? I think they were. I think they were. Like, I think they led me towards feeling more comfortable in non-base green splashes because of how I felt about Thrill of Possibility. I think Hour of Devastation is similar to Theros Beyond Death in a lot of ways with like, you know, Embalm and Eternalize being similar to Escape, especially with creatures and just speed of that format like yes there is a red white aggro deck but in general that was a more grindy format it was bomb heavy there's a lot of comparisons and so i think those cards were underrated at the time and i felt like i were was more appropriately rating him them this time around yeah so moving forward for me i'm very much going to be trying to do i mean obviously we're still going to grade the cards for the set review and all of that stuff but as soon as we the set comes out i'm going to try very hard to just think about the commons in the context of the set and how how they interact and what they push you towards. And maybe to put a little less stock in the gold uncommons signposts and things like that, right? So that, that's been one of our takeaways. And I do think the gold uncommons are fairly misleading for Theros or that or that the Theros decks, the good Theros decks, don't have much to do with the two color signpost uncommons, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, especially because some of them, the ones that are like just super powerful, you're just like, well, I want to try and jam that in any number of decks a lot of the time. Right. And then like the ones like, for example, the green white is just worse than Heliod's Pilgrim, which is yes, green white is the auras deck. And yes, you can build good green white auras decks, but to not get so tunnel visioned on that to try to think more creatively, I think, and and just be more flexible in my card evaluations. This is one of the things that I think leads you towards having an edge against the field, especially thinking about underrated commons, like understanding that Rapid Flames is on face value, you go, this is just a sort of falter effect, right? And then once you understand that it is, no, it's not a falter effect. It is the key piece to the red white heroic deck at a certain point, basically past turn five, it's the only card you want to draw because it's going to be the card that lets you go plus two plus O to my whole team. This creature can't block. I win. Right. But that card, that card's a D if you give it a grade, right? 
Right, exactly. But that is that feels misleading when you're looking at like yeah, vanilla test analog comparisons. Similarly, I think thinking about Sleep of the Dead, right? That's a, a D, D minus, F, whatever. But no, that's a really important piece to Blue Red because Blue Red doesn't end up having a lot of escape. It lets you use your graveyard in a, a very tempo-oriented fashion. Like thinking about those cards or exploring those cards, that's something I really want to do moving forward. And that's one of the reasons that I'm sort of glad we've moved away from doing the, the trophy leaderboard update is because experimenting with those cards you probably take a hit in win rate at some point and i don't want to have to feel bad about that i want to be able to come to the podcast and say hey i I had experience with this card i'm trying to figure out where it fits in because i think there may be some undiscovered territory with it yeah i do think that's a a real thing too like that maybe you and i are playing it a little safe in the start of the format yeah doing doing what's approved because we want to keep our win rates high so yeah i'm excited to explore that stuff as well yeah for sure all right some great level ups for you some old episodes of lords of limited to check out if you are new to the podcast so i would encourage you to go back and listen to any and all of those episodes i think the vast majority of them stand the test of time agreed thank you as always to salty pretzels for our intro and outro music make sure you give that a listen if you want to come check us out on twitch and twitter i know ben is gonna be crushing the mean streets of twitch in the next few weeks for spring break he's at twitch.tv slash mr metronome i'm at twitch.tv slash lord tupperware might do a little buddy stream on friday with him visiting pittsburgh Uh, and you can also check us out on twitter under those same usernames and tweet at the podcast at lords of limited if you've got any feedback about the show or any questions, shoot us an email at lordsoflimited at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you next week for another episode of Lords of Limited. Thanks, everybody. See you later. the four or five jesus shoot i don't know the names of any cards what's the three four the two red red you want you know that card god i can't think of card names I'm like what's wrong with me what's the card from guilds that put the two plus one plus one counters on gird for battle over the uh one one that pings for one if you sack something okay what's the name of that card the one one for one that oh blood aspirant yes it's a two it's a one one for two Oh, yeah. One, one for two. That's what I said in my head. <laughs>